you can trust me. These words uh, are often said, but a bit more complicated maybe than we might first think. Whether you trust someone is entirely dependent on what you trust them for. For me, um, if my wife asks if I can pick her up from the train station, she can genuinely trust me with that. I'll be there on time, maybe a few minutes late, I'll be able to get her. Uh, if she asks me to take out the bins, however, she's got no hope. Um, I forget, I've no idea why, I always do. She can't trust me with that. Think of a colleague you might have at work. Uh, you'd trust them maybe to take a phone message for you. You might not trust them um, to maybe take something more important for you. Or a friend, you might trust them to have a laugh with you, but would you trust them with a secret? What about Jesus? What do you trust him for? The most important question is not necessarily do you trust him, but what do you trust him for? Do you trust him to I don't know, sort of make things okay? Uh, to give you a sense of purpose? Do you trust him for moral guidance? Do you trust him to help you be a good person? What about do you trust Jesus to know things about you that nobody else knows? Do you trust Jesus for your greatest need in life, your need for forgiveness? Do you trust Jesus for your life? What about for your death? See, in this story in Mark, we see Jesus confronting some things which often spoil life. Last week, he confronted nature. In the earlier chapter, in the part of chapter 5, he confronts evil. And here we see him come up against sickness and against death. Mark is showing us Jesus' total authority, his total power. And the message here is then from Jesus. And he's saying here, you can trust me. You can trust me with these things. You can trust me with your life now because you can trust me with your death. You can trust me with your life now because you can trust me with your death. Will you trust him? Let's look at the story, the, these three neat little scenes, and they'll help unpack what Jesus is telling us here. So firstly, we see a desperate father, verses 21 to 24. Um, we don't quite know how long after the story we looked at last week this takes place. Um, Jesus has crossed back and forth across the lake a little bit, from the more Jewish side of the lake to the more Gentile side of the lake. Uh, he's crossed back and forth. In the first part of chapter 5, he's healed a demon-possessed man, and then he crosses back over the lake again, and as usual, a large crowd is with him. They're all asking the same question we are. Who is this man? What is he going to do next? Let's be careful not to jump too far ahead. We know how the story ends. We know who he is. Um, but put yourselves in the shoes of the people at this time. They've seen him do some amazing things. Undoubtedly, rumours would have been spreading. Who is this man? I think he's this, I think he's that. Stories will have been told. And so once again, Jesus has a crowd around him. And it's here that we meet this man called Jairus. Uh, he's a synagogue leader. Uh, that would have meant it is not the same as like a pastor. He would have been the administrator, the sort of figurehead of the synagogue. Um, a very important man. Uh, he's well known in the community. Already at this point in the story, uh, Jesus has antagonized some of the religious establishment already. That this man is so desperate, his daughter is sick, that he comes with no pomp, with no pride, with no ceremony, and he pleads with Jesus, notice it, verse 23, he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus trusts that Jesus can heal his daughter. She's on 
death's door, he says. He's a parent in anguish, and so he has faith that Jesus can do something. His cry is the cry we have of God so often, isn't it? Lord, can those we love please not suffer and die? So look at Jesus. Verse 24, he goes. He changes the plans he might have had, and he goes with Jairus, this desperate father. Uh, however, on the way, Jesus gets interrupted. On the way to this one urgent matter, he gets interrupted by a woman. Put yourself in Jairus' shoes at this point. His daughter is dying, and this woman has caused Jesus to stop. Like an ambulance on its way um, to an emergency, stopping for a coffee on the way. This is what Jairus would have been thinking. What on earth is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus do this? And that brings us to our second scene. Let's look at this, the woman's faith, verses 24 to 34. Uh, Jesus is in a large crowd. We've seen that. Undoubtedly, they're all following Jesus, say, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen at Jairus' house? And then we see in verse 25, this woman, do keep looking down, this woman in the crowd, she'd been subject to some sort of bleeding for 12 years. Mark wants us to have a real close look at this woman. Uh, very different to Jairus in many ways. They're both in the same story here, though, so Mark is calling us to look at them both, to compare, to see the differences, to see the similarities. Jairus, powerful and respected. He's named in the story. The woman has no name. She's a no one, unnamed woman. She would have been unclean according to Jewish law. Ceremonial law, she'd been suffering with bleeding. Anyone who touched her would have been unclean as well. And having to go through purification rites if they wanted to be with people or go to the temple. So she would have been an outcast. 12 years, lonely, desperate. There are differences, but there's also parallels. Mark wants us to notice those as well. Think of Jairus again, 12 years, the age of his daughter. 12 years, the length of time this woman has been ill. 12 years ago, Jairus would have been celebrating a happy arrival. And 12 years ago, this woman would have had an unhappy arrival of her own. Both are helpless. Notice what Mark says about the woman in verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Her only hope, as Jairus's was, was that this man from Nazareth, this man who seems to heal people, might be able to heal her as well. She trusted that Jesus could heal her. So we see it. She touches Jesus, touches his, his robe, and is healed instantly. And then we see Jesus ask what the disciples, and probably what you thought was a little bit of a ridiculous question. Think about it. Put yourself in the shoes of that, that time. Who touched me? Jesus in a large crowd, pressing around him. I don't know if any of you have ever been somewhere like the Middle East or India or Asia. The sense of space is slightly different of what is comfortable between people. Um, it's just a different culture. In, in England, we get a little bit uncomfortable if we're within a foot of each other. You go, come on, just give me a little bit of space here. I need, I need my personal space. But it's not the same there. It's not the same that culture. They would have been crowding, literally pressing around Jesus, following him, crowding through relatively narrow streets maybe, who knows. And someone touches his cloak. Verse 30 says, Jesus noticed power go out of him. He realised someone had touched him in faith and had been healed. And so he asked the crowd, who touched me? You can imagine the disciples laughing. 
Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Literally a thousand people have touched him in the last five minutes. It's disgusting, I know, but they have. Literally that many people. So zoom back to Jairus at this point. He must have been hopping mad. Jesus, who touched you? I don't really care who touched you. My little daughter is dying. It makes zero difference who touched you. A hundred people touched you. So, so why does Jesus stop and ask this question? It's not just because he's curious. Why couldn't Jesus have just gone on his way? Why couldn't he have just smiled to himself and gone, yeah, great, well done, another healing under my belt? Really happy with that, really happy that this woman's been healed. I'm just going to keep cracking on because Jairus' daughter's dying. I need to get there. Why did he stop? Why did he stop and ask who touched me? Well, he stops because the woman needs to know why she's been healed. We need to know why she's been healed. Jairus needs to know why she's been healed. It's really important. Think, keep thinking back to Jairus and think to yourself, just as a little side point, can you trust Jesus at a time like this? Looking on, your daughter is sick and dying and he's stopped for something else. When God's timing seems bizarre, when you're frustrated and things aren't going your way, when you know he can step in, but he doesn't seem to be, can you trust him then? Jesus wants Jairus to see this. He wants him to understand what is going on here. Who touched me? Now, as Jesus asked that question, there could probably be a few moments of indecision for the woman, wouldn't there be? She'd be going, oh, I could just walk away. Nobody would know. He might be angry. The crowd probably will be angry. I'm unclean. She shouldn't have been there. Have I done something wrong? That we see here, she goes to Jesus, she comes to Jesus fearful and trembling. And she tells him the truth. We see that. She told him everything and it's commended. So why did Jesus stop? What do we learn? Well, Jesus didn't just want a transactional encounter. Think of how self-service machines at supermarkets work now. They're great. I love them. Um, but they've genuinely taken away the need for you to ever speak to anyone in a supermarket. Um, Think of barbers, it's the opposite. I would love a barber shop where I could walk in, stick my head on the machine, not speak to anyone, go out again. The awkward small talk. We, we want to get rid of those encounters sometimes. I'm not saying it's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't want the tap and go type of relationship. He wants an actual relationship. He wants a personal encounter. She wanted his power to heal. He wanted to talk to her about her faith. A, a Jewish thinker, I have no idea what his name is, but he once talked about uh, I-it and I-thou relationships. I have a I-it relationship with my computer. I have an I-it relationship with, with books I read maybe, and an I-it relationship with my hockey stick. But I have an I-thou relationship with my wife. Some people just want an I-it relationship with God. God is seen as a big power source uh, who gives me the blessing that I want, um, like a genie in Aladdin's lamp. But Jesus won't let it sit there for this woman. He wants an I-thou relationship. Miracles are never an end to themselves. They're never just a show off when Jesus does them. They always lead to meeting. Discipleship is not getting our needs met, but it's growing in relationship with Jesus. Being known by him and knowing him on his terms. To trust someone, you need to know them. The woman also needed to know that Jesus was really... God. She needed to know it wasn't magic. Um, you can imagine that, but he just had a magic cloak 
touch the magic cloak and you'll get healed. It wasn't superstitions, you need to know that. It wasn't positive thinking. That it was nothing in her, it was just her trust in him. Jesus says, daughter, notice Jesus' gentleness there, daughter, your faith has healed you. Doubtless, other people have tried to touch him, big crowds. Doubtless, other people have pressed against him and not been healed. So why was this woman? Well, she approaches Jesus in an act of faith. She expects to be transformed, and she is. And the language Jesus then uses is full of meaning. Your faith has healed you. It's more accurately translated as your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a loaded phrase. She's at peace with God. Mark hasn't spelled it all out yet. We haven't got to the end of the book yet. But it's all pregnant with anticipation of the cross. The Saviour is on earth. And all Jesus has done so far is a way of saying, you can trust me. And this woman has. She knows he has the power to heal, and so she came to him, trusting in him. Can you trust him? Finally, then, we see our final scene. And we zoom back into Jairus, the Saviour's power. Now, think what Jairus would have been thinking. He would have been thinking, surely this woman, who's been sick for 12 years, could have waited another half an hour. Surely, Jesus, if you are who I say you are, you could have waited. And before he knows it, we see in verse 35, we hear his daughter is dead. For all of us, this moment will come. For some of us, it may have come with close family. It's the ultimate statistic, isn't it? One out of one of us will die. And Jairus has been confronted with it here. And he's thinking, why did you stop Jesus? In today's world, it would have been malpractice. He would have been sued. <laughs> Treating the less urgent before the urgent is just wrong. And then Jesus says this in verse 36, could have been incredibly insensitive. Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus is saying, trust me. There's no need to hurry. Trust me. Even when it seems like I'm not doing what I should be doing, trust me. God's sense of timing will confound us no matter what culture we're from. He doesn't operate on our schedule. He's saying here, remember the storm, guys? Remember the storm. I showed you my love is compatible with going through storms. Now I'm saying it's compatible with what may seem like unconscionable delays. What does this look like for you? Where are you wondering about God's timing? Will you trust him? Jesus is calling Jairus to have more faith than he would have been expected to need. He thought he needed enough faith for his daughter to be healed. And Jesus is now saying to Jairus, no, no, don't be afraid, just believe. I can deal with this too. Now, as I said, Jesus must know what he's on about, or this would be amazingly insensitive, laughable, even as we see. He arrives at the house. He's got to Jairus' house now, and there's an utter commotion. Um, first century morning rites are quite different to ours, at least ours are today, Middle Eastern morning rites are. Uh, in Britain, it's a little bit more stiff upper lip, uh, a little bit more reserved. But in this culture in the Middle East, you do not truly honour the dead unless you let it all hang out. That's how they do it. And in some Jewish codes, it was even prescribed that you needed to provide at least two professional wailing women and a flautist to play dirges. It actually happened. They were required even of the poorest. So there really was a commotion and a wailing. And Jesus comes in and he says, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. Seriously, Jesus? really insensitive again, potentially. 
You can imagine people laughing at him. You can imagine people cursing him, potentially, for his insensitivity. But Jesus sends them all out. Now, before we go further, we need to establish she wasn't actually asleep. Uh, she was dead. It's a turn of phrase. We know this for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we know this because of the mourning and the wailing. They would have checked if she was dead or not. The professional mourners would have known she was dead. And secondly, Jesus uses this phraseology again of Lazarus. A, a few chapters later, probably a year or two later, one of his best mates when he raises him from the dead. Lazarus had been dead four days. They could smell him. That's how dead he was. And he still uses the phrase, he was asleep. It's not a medical judgment for Jesus. It's Jesus' phrase that he used because it's how he views death. It's not final. For those of us who trust in Jesus, this is a phrase we can use, how we can view death. She's just asleep. Now, zoom into the room with me, where Jesus is with the little girl. He sent most of the people out. Verse 31, 34, 41, sorry. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Mark writes the words in Aramaic as they are the exact words from Jesus' mouth. You can imagine Peter, who influenced most of this book of Mark, saying, I remember the words vividly, Mark. He said, little girl, get up. The book of Mark written to a Greek audience, so Mark translates it for us there. Look at the detail. Little girl, sweet child, get up. For Jesus, death is no greater obstacle than a parent waking up a child from sleep. Little girl, get up. It was as easy for Jesus to raise her from the dead as it is for a parent to wake a child from a light snooze. This is the power that Jesus has. Now, let's not get caught thinking that people back then were just more gullible than we are. This is an astonishing claim Jesus is making. It's partly why he would have sent most people out of the room at this time. He wanted to dampen down expectation that he was the promised Messiah at this stage. The people were astonished, it says there. At this, they were completely astonished. Back to that universal statistic, it's morbid, but it's true. We're all helpless in the face of death. But Jesus is not. He has power over death that we see here. That is why he has come. The Bible makes it clear that for the ways in which we have turned away from God, the ways in which we've turned away from our maker, the punishment is death. Death was meant, never meant to be natural in this world. It's not what life is meant to be about. But Jesus has come to conquer it and the cause of it, and he has power over it. Jesus is saying, look, you can trust me. Put your faith in me in all things, including death. Jesus is saying, like he did to the little girl, if I have you by the hand, death is nothing but sleep. Jesus' words are not just powerful, are they? They are immensely loving. Think back to when you were little, maybe. If you're parent had you by the hand, you felt everything in the world was safe. Some of you now have toddlers, they'll feel the same. Uh, you were wrong, of course, in some senses, because there are bad parents, and even the best parents aren't perfect. But Jesus is the ultimate parent who has you by the hand and can bring you through the darkest night. You can trust me with your life now because you can trust me with your death. What enables Jesus to do this? Well, in his letter to the church in Corinth, um, a guy called Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians, he says that Jesus was crucified in weakness so that we can live in God's power. Christ became weak so that we can be strong. His e healing of the sick woman is a foreshadowing of the cross. He lost power 
so we could gain strength. He took on our uncleanliness so that we can be clean. I don't know if there was a time when you were in a crowd as a child and you maybe lost your parents' hands. I remember it vividly. Uh, Safeway supermarket, Cheltenham. I remember it. I remember being in floods of tears. I had no idea where they were. That's nothing compared to Jesus' loss. When he went to the cross, when he took the punishment we deserve for not trusting in God, when he took that punishment for not trusting in him for everything, he lost his father's hand on the cross. He went into the tomb so we can be raised out of it. He lost hold of his father's hand so we could know that once he has us by the hand, he will never, ever, ever forsake us. You can trust me with your life now because you can trust me with your death. On the cross, he lost his life so we could live forever. The only way for Jesus to give us this power and life was to go through weakness and death himself. Will we trust him? Will you let him take you by the hand? He calls Jairus here to have serious faith. Faith that could raise his daughter. Will you trust him? As we finish, let's... Let's zoom out of the story quickly. Mark has deliberately put this story in. We deliberately have the two together, two kinds of faith. They both had one thing in common. They were both victims of desperate circumstances. Both had no hope apart from Jesus. And Jesus commends the faith of the woman. He uses her faith to inspire Jairus to have his. Faith to trust Jesus even when everything seems to be against it being the right idea. And remember, be encouraged, if a, a broken, disgraceful, fearful, frightened woman has her faith commended by Jesus, then no matter how ashamed you might feel, no matter how broken you might feel, you are welcome to come and trust Christ too. Be encouraged by that. Pop briefly back to Jairus. Why did Jesus allow things to happen like this? What was the point of it all for Jairus? The waiting, the desperation, the death. He was challenging Jairus. Don't be afraid, just believe. Trust me, I can deal with this. You can trust me with my, your life now because you can trust me with your death. Do you trust him when life seems to give you lemons? Do you trust him when life doesn't go as you have it all planned out to be? Let's zoom back into the end then as we finish. To our encounter here with death, Jesus has come to conquer it, to deal with it and its cause, our sin and rebellion against God. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, if there is a chance you think it might be true, please have a think about it. If it seems too fanatical to you that someone might have power over death, it did then, still does now, they were astonished. It always has been, so that's no grounds for ignoring it. We would love to help you think these things through. Please look at this man, Jesus, for yourself. No matter how young or how immortal you might feel, you have to come to terms with death. He was just 12 years old. Whatever your views about organized religion, about Christianity or the church or the Bible, you need to come to terms with the fact that one day you will die. And come to terms in such a way that you might live with it. Look at this man, Jesus. Will you trust him? This is what it means to be a Christian, just to put your trust in Jesus, to say sorry for how we don't trust him, to turn around and to follow him. It's not to rely on our status, on our wealth, on our good deeds. Look at the woman. 
hearts, to put our trust in Jesus for our desperate need for forgiveness. You can trust him today. And if you do follow Jesus here today, will you trust Jesus with everything? The small things as well as the big things, the things which don't go as we want them to, when timing seems all off our agenda. We're in danger, aren't we, of sometimes just trusting Jesus with death, maybe. We kind of go, we've got that sorted, because I've put my faith in Jesus, that's sorted. But let me crack on with the rest of our life now when it comes to it. No, Jesus wants to trust him with all of our lives, all the details, all the brokenness, all of the suffering, all of the doubt. You can trust Jesus with your life because you can trust him with your death. So Christian, trust him with all things. And also don't fear death. Our death is but a sleep for those who follow Christ. You'll have seen and heard maybe that Billy Graham, an American evangelist, died recently. He was still writing newspaper columns at the age of 99, bizarre as it may seem. But he wrote this just weeks before his death. He knew this would be his final column. He was obviously on death's door. He said this. He said, by the time you read this, I will be in heaven. But I won't be in heaven because I preach to crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. Do you know you will go to heaven when you die? You can by committing your life to Christ today. Billy trusted Jesus with his life and his death. Here in this story, we see this. You can trust me with your life now, Jesus says, because you can trust me with your death. Will you trust him? Will you have faith in the one who has power over death? Will you have the trust in the one who died so you can have life now and life for eternity? Let me pray. Then we're going to sing. Father, we thank you that as we see more of Jesus in Mark, we see more of who you are, we see more of your character, we see more of your power, your authority. Lord, we see your trustworthiness. Lord, help us to trust in you in all circumstances in life. To not be afraid to just believe. Lord, help us to trust in you for our greatest need, for our forgiveness, for the punishment of death. Lord, we thank you that you became weak so that we can be strong. We praise you so much for your death on the cross, for the way you made that possible for us, Lord. Help us to trust you, I pray. Amen.